This is episode 6-7 of Free as in Freedom. Hi, I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. This is Free as in Freedom. Bradley, what are we discussing today? So as we promised our listeners in our previous episode, today we're going to talk about two exceptions or additional permissions, as I prefer to call them, to the GPL. What is an exception or additional permission? So here's the thing about license. The thing about licenses is they give you permissions. And in fact, I'm very fond of saying that I don't like the term permissive license for things like the M- the M- permissive MIT or BSD two clause BSD license. And the reason I don't like the word permissive is because the GPL is one of the permissive most permissive license ever written in the history of licenses. Because if you buy an Apple device, you, know, you go to the store and get an iPhone and the, that you know that big giant glass store with all the shiny proprietary stuff in it. You go in there. You get that iPhone, you get this giant licensing agreement that tells you all the things you can't do. You can't reverse engineer the product. You can't modify it. You can't study it. You can't change it. You can't do anything. You can't even reinstall your your phone without taking it to one of those so-called geniuses who works there. And they literally do call themselves geniuses. So with the GPL, you read the first couple of sections, you're like, oh, I get the permission to copy the software as much as I want. I get the permission to modify it as much as I want. I get the permission to share it with other people. I get the permission to make a bunch of money with GPL software if I'd like to. So it's highly permissive. But license. provided everybody follows the rules. Right. Right. And so it's a, it's a very permissive license with lots of requirements. And those requirements are always designed to assure software freedom. Now, one of the problems we have is, Karen is how old is the GPL version 2? How old is it? It's pretty old. It's 1991 was the first publication. Oh, wow. It's really old. Right. So the GPL version 2 was written at a time... But it's the perfect license, Bradley. Well, (laughs) I don't think any license we have currently is the perfect license. You know, in in order to form a more perfect license, (laughs) you may, in fact, need to make changes about the terms of the license. Now, one of the ways that copyleft actually works is that you can't change the term. So everybody's really confused now because I just said we're going to change the terms of the GPL, but the GPL says you can't change its terms. And it's irrevocable. And it's irrevocable. Indeed. Irrevocable? How are you supposed to pronounce that? I don't actually know. Either way. Both correct? Both correct. Is one of them like British and one of them US? I don't know. I've heard both ways in the US. I don't know. It's possible that maybe our our listeners in... Uh, the UK or Australia or New Zealand could let us know what, how you pronounce it. Now I want to say the word, which is a very popular word where I used to live in Boston, Massachusetts. Irregardless, it's irrevocable. And irregardless, of course, not actually a word, uh, but people like to say that. I also didn't mean to offend anybody not in those places. I want to okay. hear from you, too. Right. I'm curious. I, I never notice how people with a Boston accent say irrevocable. Maybe they say it like irregardless. Anyway, so we're moving on. And... What we're going to talk about is how is it that you can take GPL version 2, which is a strong copyleft license, and it says you can't push additional restrictions on it, so how can you make an exception to that? How, Bradley? I thought you were going to tell me. Well, 
you're, you're, you're leading us down the garden path. So. I thought you were going to take them the rest of the way down this garden. Path. Oh, okay. Well, that's fine. <laughs> that, that's totally what she said. It's funny because when somebody sets it up the way that they want it explained and then they kick it to you, it's a really funny thing. So, uh, so the way that you can, um, uh, that, that you can, basically, Bradley is saying that you can grant additional permissions. You can allow, um, you, it, provided that you retain the copyrights to the work, you can um, you can add what we call an exception to the license. Now, this idea of exceptions or additional permissions is is actually codified into um, GPLv3. There's actually right. an additional permission section. So, however, in the history of GPLv2, there have been many additional permissions granted for GPLv2 works. The first that I know about was the Bison exception for the Bison uh, software. I think that was the first one, right? I, I have not verified. Um, it is my belief. Well, too I much, if I were trust. being deposed, <laughs> if I were being deposed, I would say, to my knowledge, the Bison Bison exception, <laughs> Bison, Bison <laughs> the Bison <laughs> exception is the first additional permission for GPL version two, uh, of which stop, I am aware. Stop, stop. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway. So, to my knowledge. I yeah. would say if I were being deposed, the okay. bison exception is, or additional permission, I think it was called an exception, was the first one ever written right. from and, the GPL version 2. And there are a lot more. There have been many more. Um, and that's, in fact, why, as Karen was saying, it was codified as a formal process in the GPLv3. And it was done basically informally for GPL version 2, going back as far as the early 90s. Now, I, I want to digress a little bit to say why I don't like to call them exceptions. The reason... I don't like that. While most lawyers are okay with that, I find that developers tend to think of exceptions as a negative outcome. Uh, like some languages will throw an exception, or if you have an exception in the system, it is a special case that you have to deal with. And therefore, people tend to hear the word exception and think of something negative. And I think that additional permissions are neither negative or positive, and it kind of depends on what they say. Yeah, it certainly depends on what they say. And and and. I don't know. I have I have mixed feelings about it because additional permission sounds like you're getting something really great. And now I think we only would recommend additional permissions when they're really needed because they otherwise infringe on the ultimate long-term permissiveness of of copyleft of of GPL software. So it's this it's this constant tension. So you may be granting more So basically you can take for example um, GPL v3 which has the additional permission section you could grant additional permissions until you have a much more non-copyleft license right or or as is more common a weak copyleft license so if you take a look at the lgpl the lesser gpl version 3 it is in fact dra dra drafted as an additional permission to gpl so i actually dislike the term additional permission because it sounds like this huge feature and i think what you wind up is a worse license unless you absolutely need the additional permission i think there is a place for weak copyleft i think our listeners know that i prefer strong copyleft heavily uh, but there are cases like glibc where a weak copyleft makes more sense no it's absolutely necessary in some cases and so i would have actually called them like necessary you know, I don't know what I would have called them if I were involved in that drafting, but I've always decided we've never talked about this before. Yeah. But but I actually dislike the term additional permission for the same reason that you don't like the term permissive licenses. Yeah, I see your point. Um, but I don't like exception either. So anyway, I've been calling them additional <laughs> permissions. So anyway, we're going to I think we're for the rest of this show, we're going to be calling them additional permissions. So given that you can do these for GPLv2, at least in an informal way, there was sort of a strange thing that happened. In our previous episode, we talked about those principles we published, Karen. The principles of community-oriented GPL enforcement. And there were a number of principles. Like 
litigation should be a last resort. Like uh, a goal of en- the goal of enforcement should be compliance, and that you shouldn't sell out um, GPL compliance for monetary gain. But the very last one that we added. Um, and I almost added as an afterthought when I was uh, drafting. I, I wrote the first draft of the principles. I almost added as an afterthought was that you should extend the termination provisions of GPL version 3 to GPLv2 only works when you're doing enforcement for a GPLv2 work. And the reason that it seems reasonable to add that to the principles is that the GPLv2 termination provisions are quite strict. They say that if you violate the license in any way, even a trivial way that you can fix quickly, you immediately lose all your permission to distribute the work forever and always. And now I have a Dalek in my head saying terminate. Terminate. Yeah. So that termination is pretty strict. And and my understanding, this is really just what I've gleaned from conversations with people like Richard Stallman um, and Jerry Cohen and other people who helped in the drafting of GPLv2. My understanding was there was a lot of concern about how copyleft was using copyright. Because if you go back and think of 1991, um, there was actually a concern that it was some sort of weird thing that didn't make any sense. And so they wanted to make it look as much like a traditional copyright license as every other one for every book you know, you've ever gotten in your whole life. They have very strict copyright licenses that permit, prohibit you from doing lots of things. So there was a tendency to make it a little more harsh because they wanted to make it seem like, hey, this is, you know, we're trying to protect quote-unquote, because that's the way intellectual property, quote-unquote, people tend to think. They're like, it's for protection, so they want to make it look like protection. And, and on the V2 mechanism, it's very simple, it's very clear, and it's very powerful. So in, until you see how this sort of plays out in the industry, it sort of, it makes a lot of sense to do it this way. Right. And the thing I like about it the least is not usually the thing that people, other people complain about, and I'm going to explain why. I mean, the thing I like about the, dislike about the GPLV2 one is even if you discover the violation yourself, fix it yourself, and you're done, and everything's good, technically under GPLv2, at least in the United States and probably many other places, you've still lost your rights, which is so a this, weird outcome. This mechanism works great when copyright has been aggregated, especially with a nonprofit, you know, mm-hmm. with a charity, the way that the FSF had been aggregating its copyrights. Because the FSF, uh, generally speaking, always acts well when they enforce the GPL and is not interested in catching people who had a minor violation, fixed it, and then go after them for large amounts of money for past infringement. Unlike, say, Patrick McCarty or somebody who's doing it inappropriately. So in that context, it's much better to allow people to fix their violations and have a period of time. So the GPLv3, the most important part of the GPLv3 termination provisions that I like is that if you fix the violation on your own after a certain period of days, I believe it's 90 in the license, you are no longer in a rights-terminated situation. If, if, I, if I were to find somebody who violated the GPL um, you know, at the beginning of the year, in January and didn't contact them until June, they would be able to say, actually, we fixed the violation in March. We're totally good. Yep. And we're ready to go. And there's there's a 30-day cure from the notice from the, the notice from the copyright holder. Right. So that's the other part of it, which is right. if, someone viol- if someone violates and they haven't repaired it yet, so they're still in an active violation situation, so they violated on January 1st, and you send them as a copyright holder a letter letting them know that they are infringing your copyrights, which of course any GPL violation is a copyright infringement. You tell them you're infringing their copyrights. They have until January 31st, the morning of January 31st, to correct that violation. And if they correct it by then, 
fully, completely. There's no such thing, by the way, as partial compliance. There <laughs> is compliance with this term, but not that term. But compliance is a binary thing. You're either in compliance with the license or out of compliance. You can talk about the details of what you need to do to get from zero to one, but it's zero to one. But if they flip that bit on by January 31st, they get their rights restored. And there's no damages claim that you can chase in a court on January 31st if they come into compliance that morning. Right. And so this is a pretty neat provision. And I think it's one of the, the real selling points for GPLv3. And I think a lot well, of... for some people, right? I mean, so I think what happened was, and this, I'm going to talk more about this in the next segment. I, I One of the things I, I actually somewhat regret putting that in the principles, in part because people I know. focused on this. They focused on this as such an important provision. And if I look at GPLv3... I would want to backport much different provisions. Now, the problem is you can't backport any permissions or any, I'm sorry, any provisions that would turn out to be additional restrictions. Because remember, you can only add an additional permission. You can make the license more permissive. You can't make it more restrictive. said there are two of these different um these different additional permissions that we were talking about the first one is well and what they do is they backport these, right and i use the word backport because developers don't understand what that is they take the gplv3 termination provisions and backport them to gplv2 they're allowed to do that because gplv2's termination is stricter than gplv3 so they're allowed to do that it's permissible it's not an additional restriction and it's just an additional permission Right, and the first one to come out, Karen, was the well. So okay, so was the the kernel um, kernel enforcement statement additional permission, and so that was the first attempt to sort of and, and the reason why um, they arrived at this was that they were looking for a way to demonstrate that while that the Linux community was not in favor of Patrick McCarty's tactics, and Patrick McCarty, remember from our last episode, was going sending out these nasty grams and then catching companies in in um, non-compliance and then dragging them into the fast-track court system in Germany and collecting ballooning payments from them. And so this was was appalling to kernel developers. And so they went back and tried to put this, um, or a portion of the, the community um, uh, it's drafted this statement, um, which is, 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 is a statement of intent with a, an additional permission in the middle. Right. So, and, and, and sort of the history of this, just so people understand, is that it was originally just going to be drafted as a political statement. Yeah, um, early versions of it were just, um, you know, discussions about litigation as a last resort and how the community feels about its software and, um, you know, and, and what it would be right and what not, right? the norms around the behavior within the ecosystem. Right. And, did, and you saw some early drafts yeah, when it was I, still in that form. Yeah. And then it kind of all went radio silent. Uh, it was done just by Linux Foundation uh, from from sort of from that point. In consultation with a few big companies. Right, some, some big companies and Linux Foundation got together, they wrote a final draft and then that draft was emailed out um, a couple days before it was put in the kernel tree to all the major contributors. A little bit ridiculously because that um, the emails that some of the developers got were, the, the email said, you're receiving this email because you're a quote, pretty major contributor to the recent version of the kernel. Um, and so we drafted this statement with, uh, with consultation with big companies and their lawyers. And so we can't take any comments now if you, if you don't like something about the statement. But we think you should sign on. 
So, um, <laughs> and generally a statement is more or less unobjectionable. And certainly yeah. the additional permission that is uh, kind well, of... Go ahead. There okay. is something objectionable within that additional permission, and we'll get to that, because, right. because both of the things that we're talking about have this problem. Indeed. But it, generally speaking, it is, it is an additional permission to GPL. There's uh, no reason not to grant these additional permissions that it grants, from my point of view. I don't think it injures copyleft in any way to grant them. Uh, and therefore, it's relatively benign. I think it actually helps copy left because I think it's a preferable. It depends how you look at it, but right. I, I think it's a real benefit. And it, and and that's basically all that this additional permission does is it yeah. is it grants this variant. It just takes that provision from GPLv3 and it says that you commit you give that additional permission on GPLv2 works. Right. So um, so the reason I say it's relatively benign is because while it solves some vectors of attack that people like Patrick McCarty, bad actors, might use, it doesn't really solve all of their vectors of attack. And in fact, it doesn't solve most of the vectors of attack that Patrick is doing. Because remember, when Patrick attacks somebody, he knows, he, he picks targets that are unlikely to be able to get into compliance, not just in 30 days, but six months or a year, because that's how his balloon payment works. He gets more money six months out, one year out. So if he's picking targets that can't even do it in six months, the fact that they get an extra 30 days is going to be relatively meaningless uh, for what he's up to. On the other hand, I think giving people another 30 days is a good idea and we should yeah. do it. Yeah. And so this statement was signed on to by, I think, about 100 individuals and some companies um, so I think it was was wildly successful um, in right. that regard. And that's something I want to talk about, what how it was signed on to. So one of the interesting things is that um, Linux uses a, a, an assent process for contribution called the Developer Certificate of Origin. And or the DCO is the how DCO. people refer to it. And um, there's a lot of discussion. You can probably find many talks from James Bottomley. Uh, he's kind of been the primary advocate of the DCO out there in the community. We're, we're actually trying to get him on the uh podcast at some point, and we'll probably interview him a little bit about the DCO if we can uh, get a time scheduled with him. But just to give you the context for this particular discussion, the DCO is, is designed to be a simple system that developers don't have to dig too deeply into, that they just simply assert uh, what is called inbound equals outbound, which means that they have permission for the code that they're giving for it to be released under a GPLv2 uh, compatible license of some sort. So there is code under the two-clause BSD in Linux. There's code under lots of different GPLv2 compatible licenses. And when a developer puts sign-off-by colon with their name and email address at the end of a commit, they are asserting to the fact that they believe that they have permission to license the works in that patch under a GPLv2 compatible license. But that's also all they're asserting. So if the Linux enforcement statement were part of the DCO, it would change kind of everything for Linux developers because suddenly if they did signed off by, it would mean they were agreeing to this statement and granting an additional permission. And that's beyond what just being GPLv2 compatible. So you're totally allowed to put GPLv2 only code into Linux anytime you'd like. But then suddenly if the DCO meant you were also signing off on the kernel enforcement statement, it would also mean you were granting an additional permission that's not beyond, more permissions beyond GPLv2 only. So it couldn't work with the DCO. So what they did, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a, I'll admit, I think it's kind of a hacky solution. What you do if you want to agree to the additional permission, you submit a patch to Linux. And that patch would put your name into the file that has the additional permission in it. And when that patch is merged upstream to the release, 
you've granted that permission for the release and going forward. Of course, they're primarily names of individuals, not corporate copyright holders, even though most of the copyrights, of course, in Linux now are held by companies. Well, there's a there's a mechanism for showing that you do it on behalf of your company. There's like a parenthetical approach where you put your company's name in parentheses if your company has explicitly agreed to to your your assenting to it or to your granting it. Yeah. And so, um, so I'm actually getting an exact count in real time, real time typing. Um, so about 109 oh, okay. of the thousands and thousands of kernel copyright holders um, have agreed to this uh, agreed to this statement. So it's it's you know it's a very small percentage. Which means that for the file for the for the p- pieces of code, the the contributions that the signatories that the 109 signatories um, have made to the kernel are now licensed under GPLv2. Plus, generally, uh, this is more complicated than that, but GBLV2 with that additional permission. Correct. So it's a reasonably useful thing. Uh, it's, a, it's a little complex solution. Um, so there's also another initiative that came along uh, and that came out after this that's doing something very similar. So, uh, so shortly after that, um, Red Hat published a what they're calling the cooperation commitment, and the cooperation commitment is basically a very similar thing. It's the same. Um, it's the same additional permission. Yep, it's the same backporting additional permission where they take the um, they take the um, the text from. Uh, from GPLv2 for GPLv3's termination provisions, and it, it grants it as an additional permission to GPLv2 works, um, and it um, it uh, it does that while it looks almost identical to the kernel the kernel enforcement statement additional permission, and by and and we're I'm going to abbreviate that to KeySAP now. Oh, yeah, so. Kernel enforcement statement additional permission is the KeySAP, which is <laughs> I, like, you think it's, it sounds kind of funny, but then as soon as you start saying it, that's all you want to call it. <laughs> well, and the reason we're doing that is because the kernel enforcement statement, as we mentioned at the beginning, is both a political statement and the additional permission. I, I mean, again, I think it was sort of not the best idea to combine them. They should have probably made it two documents, but whatever, that's what they did. So, Yeah, yeah. And, and so the KeySAP, the additional permission part is just the part that's legally operative. It's just the part that says we grant this additional permission, and then it has the the GPLv3 termination provisions, and so um, and so the Red Hat version of this is very similar, except that it um, it has a, a, a number of um, of additional legal clarification points. It has a couple of things that explicitly says that the um, the permission is is not revoke is irrevocable which i think is actually confusing that it says irrevocable here because people might think that well that because this is initial permission to gpl that maybe there's a way that gpl v2 is revocable which it is not right and, and karen and i have actually written a number of different exceptions ourselves uh and um one of the things we always try to do is you want to kind of mirror anytime you need to use a word in the uh, in the per- additional permission. Remember that uh, when a judge were to look at this, for example, they're going to read it as an entire document, even though it's like an add-on document. It's included kind of by reference when you say, "I'm granting this GPL permission plus this additional permission." So you want your language to be consistent. And while the language in GPLv2 is a little bit 
old, you still kind of have to be consistent with it. Yeah. And the word irrevocable isn't used in the GPL. We believe, to be clear, absolutely fundamentally, the GPL is irrevocable, but it doesn't say it with that specific well, word. I, well, which is nice in a way, but the problem is, is that it makes it sound like there could be a chance that V2 is revocable, which it's not. Yeah, agreed. The GPL V2 is not revocable, and I think that issue is confusing. But I would like to get to another really confusing and problematic word usage in Red Hat's, quote, GPL cooperation commitment, unquote. They define the word we in the cooperation commitment, and they define it as each contributor to this repository as of the date of inclusion of this file, including subsidiaries of a corporate contributor. The problem is the word we in the GPL version 2 means the FSF specifically, the drafter of the license. So it's really confusing, especially because it's called the, quote, GPL cooperation commitment, Somebody reading this at a thousand foot level would would actually be legitimately confused about whether it was an FSF document or not. That's why I don't call it the GPL cooperation commitment. I've been calling it the Red Hat cooperation commitment, RHCC. Um, so that's another case where they used a word that's already used in the GPL to mean something else, and and so that's really troubling yeah. to me. Now we're criticizing these things. I, you know, I think both these efforts. They're somewhat laudable, you know, they're trying to bring clarity, they're trying to make it easier, they're trying to reduce risk, just like we did with um, the principles, which is where we started talking about this idea. Um, the, the truth is that these, these, this permission or this commitment in our case in the principles and this additional permission in both the KESAP and the cooperation commitment is so minimal. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's, I like to say, ice in wintertime or sleeves from our vests. It's, you know, it's so rare that someone can get into compliance during the period that it's, it's really not granting very much. And then adding additional confusion to that is just, I don't know, it just seems like a, a you know, it seems problematic. Um, so, so yeah, so I, I just want, um, before we go to the next segment, I just want to clarify, I think earlier in the segment, I'm not going to re we're not going to re-record it because it'll bother Dan. I said 90 and I meant 60 days. Um, yeah, I was going to actually say that. Yeah, yeah, I figured I should say that in this segment, just so people know. Yeah, I, for we're some reason, We're scrolling through 90. and we're like, we yeah, both noticed yeah, that it's yeah, 60. Yeah, I, I just, I just misspoke no. before when I said 90. So that, so that's the, the first one. So remember there's two parts to it. There's the 60 days. If you violate, you discover it yourself, you haven't been contacted, you come back into compliance, 60 days later, you get your right back. It's not 90 days. Um, I was actually adding the two numbers because then the, the Next one is a 30-day. Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, so it's 60 days. So both of these additional permissions, I think, have a significant drawback to them. What is that drawback, Karen? Tell us. <laughs> so that drawback is that both of these additional permissions have a provision that limits the additional permission to only situations which are non-defensive. So what does non-defensive mean? Like what, like what does that mean in practical terms? So what's interesting is non-defensive is not defined in the KESAP but it is defined in the um, in the Red Hat. And it doesn't appear in the GPLv2, so there's no nothing about non-defensiveness in the GPLv2, no, so they can't fall no. back on that definition either. Right. Defensive means it, um, so it's basically distinguishing whether you can use it as a, uh, whether someone would have this permission if they go ahead and they sue you. The defensive action means a legal proceeding or claim that we bring against you in response to a prior proceeding or claim initiated by you or your affiliate. Right, but that's what it says in the Red Hat one. This is the Red Hat one. The... 
kernel enforcement, the KSAP, doesn't have a defensive action definition. And it just so, says it just says it says we grant the permission for all non-defensive situations. That's right, and it's just generally meant like a defensive in the situation is defending yourself from some claim. It doesn't mean a claim related to um, to violating the GPL. That I do think that these are like well-intentioned efforts. These they, you know, they're trying to bring some stability, some drawing out the risk a little bit. Trying to make people feel a little bit more comfortable with, um, you know, with with GPLv2 plus this, right? So there, there. I think it's it's. I'm not. I don't want to detract from it because I think it's. I think it's actually like it's a cool idea. The only problem is it's not really giving that much. It's as I like to say, ice in the winter time or sleeves from our vests. Right, but the, but the thing with the defensive action is it's giving even less because right. it, let's let's think of an example here. In both versions, either the kernel enforcement statement, additional permission, or the RHCC. In both those cases, suppose somebody sues, um, uh, sues say, Red Hat for a patent infringement. And suppose Red Hat, uh, once they're sued, they quickly discover somebody had a totally trivial minor GPL violation that that company fixes in one day. That, like, basically, they their link to source code was pointing to the well, wrong page. Well, gotcha. Is that what happens? Then Red Hat can sue them for violating the GPL. Not waiting the cure period. The cure period does not apply. So, so basically, you get zero time if you file the suit. And even if they drop the patent suit, they don't get this permission back, right? And this is deeply problematic because I, what I'm most worried about is the GPL being decided through litigation of corporate parties who have some business dispute, who have some disagreement in the way that they transact business together that has nothing to do with free software or copyleft at all. Right. We've I, already seen cases al- already, indeed, this like Ameriprise, right? not hypothetical. Um, quite a few cases have already been brought, basically where the GPL gets thrown around because it's additional ammunition. Right, and in fact, um, it's not even hypothetical with regard to Red Hat. Because Red Hat was sued for patent infringement by a company called Twin Peaks, and they countersued for a GPL violation. So even Red Hat has done this behavior in the past, like misusing the GPL in as part of another dispute. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't want I to... I, there are some things about that that I actually don't know all the details about. So, um, But I think that, um, that this is a, a very important point, and it's curious to me. I think they included non-defensive simply because it was a lot easier for companies to sign on to, but I think it really eviscerates some of the real power behind this Well, and what I'm just about, given that both of these exceptions or additional permissions were drafted in secret with companies, I'm worried what those companies are thinking because they're not having, they're not willing to have that conversation publicly about why did you do non-defensive and what does it mean and who decided non-defensive and who asked for it to be in there and all those sorts of questions are, are never going to be answered. Yeah. And so we don't know what they're planning. I, I honestly don't think it's nefarious. I think it was just that one of the lawyers hesitated over it because he thought I'm going to have one of my... How'd my, you know it was a guy? Oh my gosh, did I say guy? You said he. Whoa! Thank <laughs> I'm you, just for, you Thanks for calling me out yeah. because they didn't know. You know, the one some lawyer in house somewhere said, you know, they thought, well, I just have one 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 less arrow in my quiver, so I'm going to put in the non-defensive word, and everybody else said, oh, well, that's a lot easier to agree to, mm. and so we can get to consensus really but, easily. But it takes a lot of what I would like, and so I wish that. But you're the, speculating. You don't know if that's happened. So you just I'm you're just, speculating. What happens based on your experience? Yes, as a lawyer. my experience yes. as a lawyer. And yeah. so what I think is that. Is that ultimately, you know, I, I don't know how much. I, I still think that the the 
these additional permissions are helpful, I, I do wish that non-defensive was not included in either one of them. Well, and Karen, just in the sound of your voice, you know, you, it sounds like you're really ambivalent about both of these because of the non-defensive thing. I mean, I hear the ambivalence in your voice. Yeah. Um, so, so. But I think it's good. I think it, nonetheless, it's good. Right. So then the question is, is which one is worse? So the, the Red Hat one is technically narrower narrower because they define defensive action, right? So it's defined, so it's a little bit confined, more than the kernel enforcement statement additional permission, I, right? I don't, you know, we it, don't know, it's, it's tough to know. I mean, I would, yes, my, my legal analysis would generally say that if there is no definition, then chances are it would be construed more broadly. Oh, you said you're legal now. So you're, you're our listeners' lawyers? No, no I, I'm, well, I am a lawyer. I am not your lawyer. And this is obviously not legal advice. <laughs> oh, okay, just making sure. Okay, so um, so uh, so in the end, I mean, I look at these and I'm like, well, I don't mind. Like you're always, you keep saying, like, it's not a big deal to give these additional permissions. Um, so I actually started to feel like, and people are hearing my voice probably, my voice doesn't sound great. I apologize. It seems like I'm always, we're always recording when I have a cold, Karen, lately. Um, so I looked at him and I said, well, I think maybe it should be used by GPLv2 only, or even GPLv2 or later projects, right? Because they, for the GPLv2 side, it's probably a good idea to bring this thing back into their project. So then the question becomes, which one's the better option? Yeah, and they're both pretty simple. There's not much to them, Ooh, but... See, see, I don't... I'm really worried about the Red Hat one. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you what really worries me about the Red Hat one. All right. Remember that thing I was talking about, the DCO? Yep. And how the kernel enforcement statement, additional permission, they had to make a separate ascent mechanism for it to work at mm -hmm. all with their process. Lots of projects, including including like five different conservancy projects alone, let alone projects out in the world, use the DCO. It's like a lot of people who use Git automatically just use the DCO for their ascent, which is great because it means they're inbound equals outbound projects and all that's good. The problem is the Red Hat one defines an ascent mechanism. Remember all this confusion I was having about the fact that we is defined to mean something different in the Red Hat one? Well, we, I'm going to quote directly from the Red Hat one, it says, we means each contributor to this repository as of the date of inclusion of this file, including subsidiaries of a corporate contributor. So, and that sounds... On first glance, oh, that's good. They've they've said who's agreeing to it, and so we can we can analyze that and look at that. And the first look at it, I was like, oh, you could look at the Git log. No, you can't. Let me tell you why. The Git log's useless to you to figure out if this was in the repository. Because remember, Git is a distributed version control system. I can have clone upon clone of fork upon fork, and I can be working in a fork that hasn't had this file appear yet for months, especially if I'm working on a different subsystem that doesn't get updated much. I don't need to go back and look at what's in the main repository. And in fact, the way the Linux project, in fact, that's why Linux could surely never use the Red Hat one, is the Linux project has people working in subtrees. And the whole reason Linus, when he first invented the design of Git, designed it that way was the way that he wanted Linux to work, where you have a pyramid of patches and changes going up and lots of copies of the repository, some of which are not in sync with each other until Linus looks at the final one. So if Linus were to drop this in the, his Linux tree, it would possibly be months before other people had it in the tree. So you could easily write a patch. It would be dated after this appeared in the main version of the released repository, but you never granted it because you didn't have it in your repository and you didn't know about it. So the ascent mechanism in the Red Hat's RHCC is absolutely broken. It does not work well, in the modern era. I don't know. That might be an overstatement. I don't I, think it is. I think it does not. If you use SVN, it'll be just fine. I, you like know, you, so SVN users look at the RHCC. Git, Mercurial users, I don't think it works for you. 
the the legal impact of this, I, I'm I'm not so sure about. But in any event, this is just one of the reasons why we're sort of left scratching our heads. I mean, so there are quite a few things that are, I think, kind of unnecessarily complicate the cooperation. Yeah, I don't think it's bad. I think it's good. Like, I don't want to say that it's, you know, I'd, but but I, I think Keysap's a little better. Yeah, I, I think, I actually think it's a lot better. Karen and I obviously have a slight disagreement on this. You're probably picking that up, listeners. But I think uh, Keysap is the right solution for this particular backport. I don't think it's that important that people do it. Like, it's not urgent. But I think if you're in a GPLv2 only or GPLv2 or later project, I think it makes sense to look at the KeySAP and incorporate it into your workflow. Probably using the same ascent mechanism that the kernel uses probably makes the most sense, especially if you're using the DCO because you don't want it to mess up your DCO and confuse your DCO process. <laughs> so yeah, I got a little excited with my, my little rant there. People <laughs> like my rants, so, you know, but the rant was hard on my throat. But one last thing I think we want to tell people about this issue is uh, Conservancy is going to be re recommending KeySAP for our member projects who use uh, GPLv2 or GPLv2 or later. Yep. So we're going to be doing that as part of Conservancy. And, we, and again, Conservancy, we don't mandate a particular license decision to our projects as long as it's an open source and free software license they're using. Yep. But we're going to make a suggestion. And also, I think I would love it if, um, if Red Hat and the other signatories to the cooperation commitment would consider removing non-defensive. I think that would really tip the scales the other way. I think yeah. I might you know, really consider... Um, I, I, you know, I think that would that would definitely be overwhelmingly positive towards the the Red Hat version. Right, and I well, I think they have to remove the definition of the we thing there and fix the sentence yeah, too. I, but I, what I really want, Karen, what I really want is for people to do license drafting in public, do license drafting in a publicly archived way, just like legislation is supposed to be. Now, I, I know in the U.S. legislation is drafted by lobbyists and it's horrible, but. Um, for licensed documents, just like GPOE 3 was a public process, these licensing drafting processes today need to be a public process that everyone can participate. Both of these things we're talking about were drafted by big companies in secret. And while the outcome might be okay, it might be usable, I think case KeySAP, what do you say, KeySAP? KeySAP. 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 Is usable. I think, yeah. I don't like, I just don't like the governance. It's bad governance. Yeah, the last version I saw of KeySAP before, um, you know, the, did did not have non-defensive in it. And, and it didn't even have an exception, it, per se, did it? And, and, it, and well, so it didn't have non-defensive. And by the time that I saw the the final draft, which was the um, the one sent to the pretty major yeah. contributors of the kernel, um, it, it, was, it had been added and it was too late to do anything about it. And that was the, the, the first thing I zoned in on, the moment that it, and, you know, maybe this was the only way that we could, you know, that, that Red Hat was able to build consensus with those companies, but it, it, it gave away a lot. Um, oh, and, and I'm sorry, not just Red Hat, but also the kernel community. Kernel yeah, community, and then Red Hat just basically ported that entire, you know, what had been done in the kernel, yeah. system, the kernel version. So, yeah. so, so uh, I think so, that wraps it up. Yeah, I think people should go and read uh, from the show notes the links to the various different things. Uh, we also have a, a, a blog post on our website where we talk about this. Uh, not as much detail as we just have. Um, so if you just want a reference that's text that has a little summary of what we've talked about here, uh, that's available in the show notes. So Karen, what do we have coming up on the next episode of Free Isn't Freedom? It's going to be a really good one because we have a um, uh, we have the speech that Molly DeBlanc gave at CopyleftConf, which was you mean a keynote? A keynote. It was fantastic. It was excellent. 
And, um, and we also recorded a short interview with her as well. And so we'll be including that and talking about that. Right. And we got basically all feedback said include the audio of the talk in the show. So that will be in the show. And then you'll hear the audio of the talk and the interview with Molly as well. And thank you so much for everybody who wrote us. It was just great to realize that people are listening and that you care about the format of our podcast, oddcast, oddcast. And if they care, what should they do? If you care, Bradley always makes me do the shill. But You're anyway, the executive director I am the executive director. Please donate to sfconservancy.org slash supporter. Um, it really helps us to be able to continue recording the show and um, talking about free and open source software and promoting software freedom. And for $120 a year, you get a t-shirt and you can get your name on the supporters page. Sam, of really Joyner. cool people. Yeah, it has a little heart with the Conservancy logo next to it. And we, we'll be Why grateful. does it have a heart with the Conservancy logo? Because. Why, why, why do we do that, Karen? Because we love copyleft and software freedom. No, why? Next to the names of the supporters, we have a heart with the Conservancy logo. Oh, because we why love we our supporters. That's what I was trying to ask. I we figured that was the case. We should have just said it. Well, I wanted you to say it. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for listening, and thanks for supporting us. Free as in Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of danlynch.org. That's D-A-N-L-Y-N-C-H. The Free is in Freedom theme music was written by Mike Tarantino and is performed by Mike Tarantino with Charlie Paxton on drums. You can learn more about our work at the Software Freedom Conservancy at the website sfconservancy.org. Conservancy is a 501c3 charity and is supported by your donations. An RSS feed for this show is available from faith.us. That's F-A-I-F dot U-S. All episodes of Free is in Freedom are licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 4.0 International License. And we can re-record it if you don't like it. Okay, you ready? Yeah, I've already started recording. Live from our studio audience, it's Molly DeBlanc! Yay! Was it all right listening to these? You probably listened to two recordings in a row. Yeah, last two episodes. It's actually way more exciting in person because you get to watch Bradley and Karen as well. So (laughs) if they ever want to do a a visual, a vlog, perhaps. I'm uh, not doing video. (laughs) I'm not making any any decisions one way or the other. But if Molly (laughs) wants it, it's hard not to say yes. Why don't we have a video of you, Molly, working on free software while we talk? Well, you already have a video of me talking. That's true. So go and play the video of Molly talking while you listen to her talk in the next episode. If it's available.